Hi, I'm Joseph McClendon III, and welcome to the Cure for the Common Life podcast. Listen, you know as well as I do that motivation, empowerment, and inspirational stories, they're all well and good, but that's not what keeps us going. That's not what's going to change your life, and that's not what's going to move the needle in your health, your wealth, your happiness, your abundance, or your ability to be able to help other people and make a difference. What keeps us going, what produces results in our lives is activity, not action, activity. And when you can get yourself past the things that stop you and hold you back, that's when you'll thrive, and that's when you'll crush it. And I humbly offer you these tools and strategies to kick your own ass and make the changes so that you can thrive. But most of all, I'm going to give you something every single time that you can do to create a change in yourself. Life is exactly what you dare to make it, and fortune favors the bold, baby. So if you're ready, let's bold. Well, welcome. Welcome to The Cure for the Common Life. I'm Joseph McClendon III, and I'll be your host here on this podcast. And uh, as usual, not only are we going to be talking and, and uh, learning some things, but we're going to share with you something that you can do to get go further faster. Because as we always say, this is the place to go when you want to flow the place to come when you want to run. <laughs> and my guest today, a dear, dear friend of mine, and unless you've been living under a rock, you know him or know of him. Most of us know him. He kind of came onto the scene as Theo on the Cosby Show, and then I believe it was Malcolm and Eddie. And then uh, he's been on dozens and dozens of other films. His acting career has spanned three and a half decades and he's now currently working on The Resident in Atlanta. I know he and his whole family relocated there to do that. My guest is Malcolm Jamal Warner. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm good. How you doing, brothers? Could not be better. Could not be better, especially on this day. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> you know, you and I were talking earlier, and, you know, I'll share with everybody. Malcolm and I met, and some of you may or may not know this, but Malcolm also, amongst other things, it being a true renaissance man, is also a Grammy Award-winning musician for the spoken word, believe it or not. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, but Malcolm and I first met at a base camp, a real good friend of ours, Victor Wooten, and we went there. Was it the theory camp or was it a base camp? I think it was base camp, and then I think we might have stayed for theory right after. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. And and I like to bring people on the show that have a history in beating the odds. <laughs> and That's if anybody oh, yeah. beat the odds, it's you. So share with us a little bit about what's going on out there in Atlanta, especially during these times. Yeah, well, Atlanta, it's really interesting because, you know, having grown up in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago, you know, pretty much blue states, spending the last couple of years in Atlanta and, you know, what had been a deep red state, but now it's been turned blue. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. But it's a really interesting climate here in terms of just it being the South. Right, uh, right. And there's this kind of a, there's a different kind of air, a mentality that's very much, you know, a Southern vibe. I mean, so the Southern hospitality is a, a very big part of that as well. But there are you know, also very deep rooted Southern perspectives. That so. And by the way, this is cure for the common life. So these people are used to anything. So you can go as deep as you want. Yeah. When you say you don't have to tiptoe around it, what does that mean? Gotcha. 
it's interesting because, you know, being in Atlanta, you hear all these wonderful things about Atlanta. It's, you know, like D.C., it's a black mecca. There's so much going on in the political world with black people here. But Atlanta being considered progressive, once you step out of Atlanta, you're in Georgia and you're in a deep red state mentality where it's the racism is not necessarily as covert mm-hmm. as it may be in liberal mm-hmm. places. So this has been really interesting, but in terms of where Atlanta is today, not that that mentality has changed, but because Atlanta has suddenly turned blue uh, for the first time in, I believe, 28 years, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's such a celebration, you know, with the, you know, with the results of the election. And it's been like, you know, it's been party city here, you know, <laughs> like you know, people driving by honking horns. It's funny. I got so caught up, swept up in a wave. I had to run an errand uh, yesterday, and somebody next to me was driving, and the passenger had a Biden Harris sign out the window, and I drove by. I was honking my horn. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I watched a very impassioned speech. And I know you probably saw it as well, Van Jones, yesterday talking about. Uh, you know, how he felt about what this day is. And I say to everybody, no matter what side of the fence you're on, no matter who you voted for, no matter who you uh, champion, things are changing right now. And the name of the game is this is about really starting to make a change towards something that we all hope to be better. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care where you, you know, your religion, whatever. You want a safer place for your children. You want a safer place for this world. You want to leave our children a better world than we had and all those things. And that's what's possible now. Staying the same way is not going to get, you know, it's just going to make things worse. So I say to everybody, chill. You know, celebrate, have fun, everybody celebrate, no matter what happens. And lastly, I'll say this kind of on the political tip, and that is this. This is my 13th president, 13 presidents I've been around for. And every single one of them, Malcolm, every single one, as far back as I can remember, it's always been, and I hate to use this term, but the lesser of the two evils. I've been an independent my entire life. There's never been anybody that is absolutely perfect on one side. Yeah, there have been some that it was overwhelmingly that's the the better of the evils. But, you know, everybody's got some bad. So I just am asking everybody to be patient, be kind, love each other, and let's get through this. When a president comes in that you don't like, he's still a president, you know. So deal with it. <laughs> we are right now. Yeah, there is a, and also, I mean, you, you have a president who has been very clear about, you know, his understanding that he is the president of all of America. Yes, and that is, that's one of the beautiful things as well. And the people who did not vote for him. Yeah, yeah. And that, to me, is the mark of a good leader, because a leader's got to lead everybody, especially in this. Well, Malcolm, I'm going to do this. Take us way back, man, way, way back. And, uh, you know, part of what this show is all about is teaching people and showing people, giving examples of people that have, like I said, beat the odds. And you certainly have done that. And uh, not just because where you started, but where you are right now and where you're going. But take us back to as far back as you can remember, you and I had a conversation. Who was the biggest influence in your life that set you on this course to doing what you're doing and having what you're having and being the man that you are today? Well, I mean, I would have to say, you know, I'd have to give, you know, so much of the credit to both my mother and my father. Mm. My father, you know, start out with him. My father named me after Malcolm X and Ahmad Jamal. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so, so people think of Jamal is my middle name, but Malcolm Jamal is my first name. Ah, oh, um, okay, all right. And he named me after Malcolm X and Bob Jamal. And my parents split up when I was about three. My dad got remarried uh, when I was about seven. But my entire life, my mother and father have been best friends. My father's been remarried 40-something years. But I've grown up, you know, my dad was in Chicago. We were in Los Angeles. But even with that distance, my mother and father were like brother and sister. Wow. Um, That's rare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it had such a profound impact on me with regard to my relationships, you know, and the way I interact, you know, with women in those relationships. It's been wonderful. <laughs> you know, so, so I always tell people that if you end up being in a co-parenting situation, you know, there really is no reason for the child to have to suffer. Agreed, and, agreed, agreed. And the better the relationship can be with the parents, the better the child is going to fare. So, you know, so that's a huge influence you know, in that alone, just seeing how my parents got on. Um, and I would imagine that is a huge amount of pressure that you didn't know was there, wasn't there. You know, right. we didn't know yeah. could have been there, wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. And no, you know, I was clear that they didn't get along, but they were very clear that what was important was that they both loved me. Right, right. You know, so that just, you know, like I said, it had a really profound impact on but so growing up, you know, I was primarily raised by my mom. But during the summers, I would go to Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. Spend the summers with my dad and my granddad and, you know, um, my other family. And so during my summer vacations, my father used to make me do book reports. <laughs> he had this thick book called Great American Negroes. Wow. And, and, you know, I know the book, man. I know the book. The book. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it was that book. And, you know, stories of, you know, Richard Wright, uh, yeah. Mary McLeod Bethune, Marian Anderson. So I had to read these chapters and write book reports on the people I read about. And this was during my summer vacation. Man, you know what? I got to tell you this. I mean, keep yeah. your thought. But yeah. right now, my son, he stopped rolling his eyes over <laughs> so far. But I've been having him do book reports, and I just finished, I think you know about this uh, book that I called Dare to be Magnificent, and I wrote about my father, his grandfather, and I have him down there right now doing a book report on that, right now. (laughs) So, yeah. 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 Go on, go on. So this is my summer vacation, and I'm talking six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Like, I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, and there were books on Malcolm X that were kind of, you know, written for kids. Right, right. But my father was very intent on instilling in me a very strong sense of who I am and, right. and the history of the people from whence I've come. And, of course, I didn't really get it, you know, during those summer vacations. But I remember in fifth grade, my dad had given me a book, uh, Poems on the Life and Death of Malcolm X. And I remember being in fifth grade, having that book on my desk. These kids started making a joke. Oh, what, you got a book written about you? Ha, 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 ha. And it occurred to me that none of these kids had ever heard of Malcolm X. Yes, yeah. Uh And then I slowly began to realize what my father was doing and what he was instilling in me. And it kind of, I don't know, it kind of gave me, you know, on one hand, 
a sense of bravado because you know I'm realizing that I'm learning the stuff that these other kids aren't. <laughs> you know. So my dad was just really he's a big part of my being the man I am, the way I carry myself, uh, my values, just that foundation. And I always say, I often talk about, so with the public speaking that I do and, and you know, spending my life you know, speaking to young kids and, and what have you, I always talk about how my father gave me the voice and working with Mr. Cosby gave me the platform. Oh, wow. Because I used to go with him and see Mr. Cosby speak and just seeing how you know he used the power of the Cosby show to instill messages you know that had you know it it allowed me to see oh I have a platform and there's a way where I can use my celebrity if you will to get those messages across and share those fundamentals that my father had been instilling in me my whole life and something that many many others would never ever get the opportunity to learn and, and yeah. come from yeah. that place yeah yeah you know I'm so. Sorry. I was talking to uh, Les Brown a couple days ago, and he said that upwards of 80%, uh, especially in the black community, but really it's starting to be all over, uh, of young men grow up without a strong father figure in their life, period. You know, and even the ones that do have a father figure in their life, that father figure is not strong, is kind of you know, bending to the to media and, and everything else that's out there. So this is, again, one of those things that we as men, as fathers, to me, it's our duty. It's what we're here for. Yeah. And look, I have a three-year-old, as you know. Adorable. And I have to say, <laughs> it's maybe horrible to say, but I have to say, sometimes I understand a father wanting to flee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, don't get me started, man. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, I'm not that dude. I'm not yeah. that dude, but I get it. And it honestly, it's made me a little less judgmental. <laughs> Appreciate your honesty, man, because that's the real, especially now, especially, you know, through this whole COVIDness. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And I know, speaking of that, I know a few couples who have broken up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the quarantine life and mm-hmm. having to actually interact with each other, you know, on a daily basis all day long. Yeah, it's different. It's different. Well, so tell us a little bit about your mom, because I remember you and I having a conversation before yeah. about, you know, how she influenced you and even what you're doing now in terms of the acting and your career and what you're doing now. Yeah. My mom had been, you know, you know, you know primarily raised by my mom, but she's so brilliant. One of the biggest things, and I've talked about it a lot, when, you know, there was no reason I started acting, because my mother, I grew up as part of that latchkey kid generation. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know. Uh-huh. You know, so my mom was a single, you know, single mom, you know, at work. And she was always trying to find things for me to do to keep me busy outside of just going to school and hanging out with my friends. Right, right. So she was always finding activities, you know, basketball. Um, at some point, I thought I was going to be a basketball star. Um, <laughs> that didn't last long. Um, you know, then, you know, there's this acting, you know, workshop that a friend of hers you know, had suggested. And so the acting was a thing that, that stuck. And it was the thing that kept me, you know, it always kept me busy. Yeah. You know, there were, and because, you know, my mother realized early on how much I loved theater, that was the thing she would use in terms of 
me taking care of all of my other responsibilities. Nice. I'm nine years old, but you know, at nine years old, rightfully so, there are some responsibilities that you have to have. Yeah. So, you know, it was always, you know, if I had not taken care of these responsibilities, these priorities, then I would not be able to go to the theater workshop. Smart mom, leverage. Yeah. 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 So she kept that. I mean, that was really, you know, a big thing for me because she just saw how much I loved being in the theater workshop. But the whole thing about doing theater was not about becoming becoming an actor for real. It wasn't about putting me in the business. It was literally my mother was just looking for things for me to do. And through so throughout the time, I ended up getting an agent. Try to make this a quick, concise story, but no. I did my first play. This agent had come down because you know when you do when you do children's theater, agents come down. They're looking for talent. So the agent came down, saw me in this, this first production, and wanted to sign me. And at the time, my mom had gone back to school, and she was her last year. She was like, listen, you know, this is cool, but I'm in school. I can't take him on auditions or any of that. So thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> Fast forward the following year, I'm in another play. Same agent, you know, comes, sees me, and goes to my mother and was like, listen, okay, you know, you graduated. You're not in school. There's no excuse. I want to sign your son. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, okay, fine, sure. And I, at some point, I was doing some television stuff. I was still doing theater. I was still in school. And it really wasn't until Cosby that the acting, you know, had gone from being a hobby and love to actually being a career. And now having to take it seriously as a career. And when Cosby hit in 84, you know, it just, you, you remember, I mean, out the... Out yeah, the yeah, man. I was, was right there with it. I remember the very first show. I remember watching it, you know, glued to the television set, waiting for it to come out every week. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm 14 uh, on this suddenly phenomenally successful television show. And my mother sits me down one day and she says... Listen, it's great that this show has become the phenomenon that it is, but what are you going to do? But, but you know how this business is. This show is not going to be around forever. What are you going to do when this show is over? She said, I can type. I can always get a job. What are you going to do when the show is wow. over? Wow. And I'm 14. Right. So we really ended up spending, so I, I didn't spend, you know, spend time figuring that out. And we literally looked at each year of that show as if it were the last year, because we didn't. So, you know, she really impressed upon me the importance of longevity. Right. And she said, you know, if you're going to be in this business for the long haul, you have to know that there are going to be, there are going to be times where you're going to be hot. There are going to be times where you're not going to be so hot. You know, just look at anybody who's had longevity. There are those peaks and valleys in their career. You have to, you know, decide what you're going to do so when you have those dry spells, you don't have to make desperate acting choices. Wow. So those are the things that she was, you know, she was putting on me, you know, at 14, 15 years old. So I didn't grow up with the, oh, hey, I'm a TV star, I'm on TV, you know, let me live that life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that at all. Now, mind you, I enjoyed every moment of being a teenager in those formative years on the number one show in the entire <laughs> world. <laughs> so don't get me wrong. I didn't miss anything. I did not miss anything. <laughs> but there was, you know, between the values that my parents had instilled in me, 
moment, everything that the Cosby show represented, there was a sense of responsibility that, you know, I knew how to handle, you know, being a teenager and being celebrity, if you will, right. but understanding the responsibilities that come with that. So and knowing you know, my knowing that that will change and was changed. And I never, ever saw or heard of you being on VH1's What Happened to Them or Where They Are Now. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was all about like, okay, this ride is cool, but when this ride is over, I still got to keep the machine going. So there was a level of responsibility. It was pre-social media, you know, but I was able to navigate my years as a teenager and as a teenager in the public eye, very responsibly. And a big part of that, again, really had to do with what my parents instilled in me at that foundational level long before I started acting. And that's what makes a difference. And that is, you know, to me, that is the uncommon life. That is, you know, they were able to instill in you what every parent, I don't care who you are, every parent wants for their child. And that is that they understand that, being a man or being a woman in this world means having responsibilities and stepping up and doing the right thing when it's necessary, the right thing for yourself and for everybody else around. Yeah. And for me, that is, I hate to say it, Malcolm, that is so uncommon these days because oftentimes a great deal. You, you said, you know, you came from the latchkey era. Well, that was so indicative of what I'm talking about is that the parenting was done by the television, you know, by video games and so on and so forth. And that was left to that. And as a result, so many people don't have what you have. And I always tell people, doesn't matter what you want to do. And I love what you just said, Malcolm, that it was a love of yours first, but you came at it as being a love first versus, you, you know, your outcome was to be this big star. And therefore, it was genuine for you. And I don't see that a lot these days. And my efforts in everything that I do are to help people recognize that, you know, I call it magnificence, magnifying the essence of who you are. And if you came into this world as you did with two parents that were thinking parents that were saying, I need to groom my child for the future, then so be it. That's great. But it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And that is my efforts to do right now to make sure that if you didn't have that, then learn it from Malcolm, you know, learn it from those people that are out there. You know, one of my mentors years ago, Jim Rohn, I know you know of Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn used to say, if you can't see what I see, borrow my glasses. And so, yeah, yeah, I love that. And I've always looked at it that way because I've always gone, when I look in the mirror, and I look at myself in the mirror. And of course, nowadays, you know, I'm a badass, so I teach it. <laughs> However, there was a time when I looked in the mirror and I didn't love myself. And I didn't, you know, I was looking at what's wrong with me. And I was looking at all the, the uh, things that have happened to me as a result of the color of my skin or, the, you know, my, my station in life and so on and so forth. And I learned to blame others. But the instant I started to realize the lessons that I learned from my father, because I forgot them, Malcolm. You know, I had, my father was military. My father, similar to yours, my father was quite the activist in the 60s. He got mm -hmm. arrested, hauled off to jail because he refused to uh, go around to the back and eat. Because in those days, if you were black, you weren't allowed to eat in the front. He refused to do it. They hauled him off. And uh, real long story short, my dad was arrested, taken to jail. And then he sued the state because this was, you know, in the 60s, sued the state and won. Wow. And as a result, my father was military. As a result, Malcolm, my father, the base commander, I'll make this really short, the base commander 
uh, Hickam, uh, no, no, it was uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, was embarrassed because this happened on his watch. Because what had happened is my father went into this restaurant with uh, three white guys and three other black guys. The black guys were refused service. And they came and arrested him when that was against the law. So as a result, the base commander, to save face, stationed us to Hawaii. That's how I grew up in Hawaii. So we we grew up in Hawaii. But here's the catch. So we spent five years in Hawaii. And it was beautiful. It was a wonderful, wonderful place to grow up. But when we came back, my father's final year in the service, 26th year in the service, he came back to Hickam Air Force Base with the same base commander and he sent him to Vietnam on his last year <laughs> sent my father unfortunately he came back but he was changed and so yeah but you know all of that to say my father instilled a lot of those things myself but that incident when we came when he came back and they took that away from him that crushed me because it made me feel like well it's all for naught and I did go astray a bit but fortunately things happened and it brought me back in to remember those things as well so you know again you know, what you're sharing about your background and what you're sharing, what I like people to recognize is that, you know what, you can start right now. Yeah. You know, if you hear something, you, you know, as a parent, you know, and I, and, and by the way, I wanted to say this. Now I've known you probably close to six, seven years now, uh, maybe. Uh, yeah. But uh, when we met, you were single. <laughs> you know, Happy like Harley Davidson's. <laughs> by the way, do you still have your bike? Yeah, I still have it. Yeah, I haven't seen it though because I'm in Atlanta, so you know. Yeah, yeah, I mind sitting down there in the garage. I've not even started in a couple years. I'm ashamed. Yeah, I know, man. It's embarrassing. You should be. Yeah, I have an excuse. I have an excuse. You should be ashamed. (laughs) I am. I feel it. I am. But I've watched you grow. I've watched you. One of the things that I've always admired about you is you're such a voracious, willing student. You know, willing to be coached, willing to learn, willing to, you know, eyes open, you know, teach me more and then do what you learned. And I see that in your career. And that's one of the things I wanted to bring to our listeners. And as you know, here in just a few days, we're doing uh, the Magnificent Life Challenge where you're one of the uh, presenters on there as well. And uh, when I say the cure for the common life, everybody wants to be better. Everybody wants to be healthy, happy and financially abundant and all those things. And Wherever anybody is, wherever we are, it is human nature to want more. It truly is. You know, I know billionaires, and I know you know them as well. You know some as well. And the most successful people in the world by the rest of the world standard, and they still want more as well. And so it's okay to want more as long as you stand on the shoulders of those who taught you as well. And so I appreciate you. I've watched you, as I said, you know, I've watched you become a, a husband and a father and I watched the joy on your life. I remember when you told me that you were going to be a father and, you know, listening to the, a bit of the nervousness in your voice and knowing what's in store. And you have a little girl. She's three years old. God bless you. <laughs> you know, have patience because, you know, it's going to change. Well, listen, this has been an absolute thrill. I could talk to you forever. And um, I want to make sure that everybody knows I'll put it in the notes down below. But how can they stay in touch with you? I know you got Instagram and I got your things as well. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I handle my own social media. And I often like to reply to every, you know, post and comment and tweet I get. I can't always do that. Um, Yeah, yeah. I'm very late with my responses. So please know that. But I can be reached on Twitter at Malcolm Jamal War. 
Nothing fancy, only because that's all that would fit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right. Yeah. I thought it meant something. And on Instagram, it's, it's Malcolm Jamal, at Malcolm Jamal War. And on Facebook, it's uh, there's, as Malcolm Jamal Warner. Um, I'll, yeah. I'll include that in the comments down below. And but also, I can also, you know, for digital music listeners, you can also find me on Apple Music and Spotify as Malcolm Jamal Warner's Miles Long. That's Miles my, Long, yeah. My poetry and music, my musician side of my life. Yeah, and if you've not heard this man spit, do his thing, you got to make sure that you do it. I had to hope that we maybe would have had some time to do that. Maybe on another one, we'll do that. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I can do it because that is the other side of you that most people don't know. And yeah. it's beautiful, it is amazing, has a message. And now that I know where that came from with regard to what your father taught you in those things, it yeah. makes it all the, the more poignant. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I appreciate you. I love you. And I look forward to hearing from you and doing more with you as well. I love you back, brother. And I'm looking forward to the Magnificent Life Challenge as well. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know what that is, no matter when you're listening to this, because we try to make things evergreen, but we're doing something that has never been done before. (laughs) And that is that we are bringing a specific type of, of knowledge, wisdom, technique, and process to the black and brown community that, you know, Malcolm is in front of millions of people all the time. I'm in front of hundreds of thousands of people and all those things through time. And most of those audiences are not black or brown people. They just aren't. And so what we're doing is we're bringing that to, we have something called the Magnificent Life Challenge. If this is before November the 12th, 2020, just go to MLC 2020 and uh, check it out. We'll probably be doing it again. So just, just uh, again, we'll put it in the credits below how you can stay in touch with both of us and we'll get this going. Malcolm, thank you so much. And to everybody else, remember this, life is exactly what you dare to make it. Fortune favors the bold. Mr. Warner, any last parting thoughts, words? You know, I would just, I'm reminded as we, you know, just had these election results that being a good, decent person nice. really carries so much weight. And I know oftentimes when we look out in the world and you know the world seems to be unfair because so many not decent people or people who we deem as not good people even seem to be getting ahead. And oftentimes you know, as you said, you know, you felt, you know, watching your dad's journey, that sometimes, you know, the world makes you question mm-hmm. what is, what's the point of being a good, decent person. And at the end of the day, the only reward for being a good, decent person is having the peace of mind, body, and spirit that nice. you are a good, decent person. That, you know, you, you can't look for accolades and praise from other people, but it's how you see yourself. And being able to look at yourself in the mirror and truly like the person you see, it's, that's, that's priceless, man. Yes, I yes. Mean, it's billionaires out there. They've got every material thing in the world. But they, all of them can't necessarily look at themselves in the mirror and like what they see. Malcolm, I'd say most of them. I would say most of them. Yes. That is beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you, my brother. And I look forward to seeing you here in just a couple days. Yeah, man. Down the road. Your wisdom is appreciated. I appreciate you, Joseph. Thank you, brother. All right, man. Out. Peace. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Cure for the Common Life podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. And if you have any questions or comments or any topic ideas you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at josephmcclendon.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you at the top.